Welcome to the Anthro to UX podcast, where you will learn how to break into UX with an anthropology degree. Through conversations with leading anthropologists working in user experience, you will learn firsthand how others made the transition, what they learned along the way, and what they would do differently. We will be discussing what it means to do UX research from a practical perspective and what you need to do to prepare a resume and portfolio. I'm your host, Matt Arts, a business anthropologist specializing in design anthropology and working at the intersection of product management, user experience, and business strategy. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Anthro to UX podcast. I'm Matt Arts. I'm here today with Joe Galenick, who is the UX strategy manager at Answer Lab. So, Joe, would you uh, mind telling everybody how you got interested in anthropology? Yeah, sure, Matt. Uh, just to get us kicked off today, thank you so much for having me. I really enjoy the work that you're doing with anthropologists and trying to nurture people to get into the business world. I think it's a valuable you know, thing that you're presenting out to all of our anthropologist colleagues out there. Uh, talk about anthropology. You know, I grew up in uh, South Florida, you know, so getting to, um, you know, Jamaica, uh, Bahamas, very easy back then, you know, just get on a plane, no, you know, no uh, security, you just like get your bag and just jump on the airplane, you'd be down there in a couple of hours. And, uh, I, you know, it's not like I'm a big jet setter, my parents were, but, you know, back then it was very affordable for a blue collar middle class suburban family to get down there and just kind of experience other cultures. And that was very eye-opening at a young age to understand that. And I, I really loved it, right? I'm like, this is so different than when, how I grew up and the people I know. And, you know, then you started, you know, you're in high school, maybe you, get, you start ask, as, asking questions like, who are these people? You know, what? why is this market like this that I'm visiting? You know, why are, what about these dialects? They speak English, but it's not my English, right? They have a very particular dialect. So just you prompt a lot of questions for a curious young man. And, and then in my undergraduate years, uh, they implemented an anthropology program at the Center College of Kentucky, and I was uh, attended a, uh, well, how long was it now? About 45-day fieldwork in the Yucatan in Mexico. And, you know, I couldn't imagine a better time when you're 20 years old to go to Yucatan in Mexico uh, with a with a new with an anthropology professor and a nice cohort of folks. A couple of really close friends uh, went down there as well. And uh, it was very nothing against anybody, but it was very loose. Did a lot of hitchhiking, talked to a lot of people, very, you know, just had a phrase book and just trying to get some insights into the local culture and the uh, Mayan ruins down there, the, the archaeological sites. And just engaging with people so extraordinary time in my life and then uh years later i wanted to go get a master's degree in anthropology because i didn't want to be a professor at some point i'm sure you hear that story quite a bit uh and uh, i was at university of idaho for a couple of years uh, studying religion ritual etc etc just some classic anthropological uh, topics and then things took a very different turn for me um uh and I ended up uh, providing mental health services and implementing a mental health program in a maximum security penitentiary, um, which was, I could talk to you about two, hour, two or three hours about that. Uh, but after several years of that, I did want to continue to pursue uh, an a degree in anthropology, a PhD. And really it was because of all my years working in mental health, I had high level of interview skills. I worked in a lot of challenging environments and, uh, you know, medical anthropology, you know, psychiatric anthropology, uh, cross-cultural psychiatry, you know, the Kleinman School, Byron Good, all of these great scholars, you know, I was reading these as I was working in the penitentiary. 
And uh, at the time, I thought I could leverage all of those skills that I had and those experiences into uh, a, a career in studying cross-cultural mental health, or at least the intersection of behavioral health uh, and criminal justice. As you know, Lorna Rhodes wrote a real famous book many years ago about this. Um, James Waldrum, another anthropologist, also investigated uh, in the Canadian prison system. Uh, so I thought, hey, that's going to be me then. I'm going to I'm going to pursue this. Um, so I got my PhD in anthropology, but I also got a master's in public health at the dual degree program at Case Western Reserve University. And really, because all of my years in applied work, I, I would call that direct mental health services, implementing programs, uh, systems creation, all of these things, showing the value of the work that we were doing in the institutions, all of those things, I, I realized that I needed to have some applied something <laughs> just as a not to diminish a master of public health degree as a fallback, but I definitely wanted to have something to rely on besides just my, you know, intensive and ext extreme knowledge and extensive knowledge of, you know, cross-cultural mental health research. Um, so uh, so it's a, it's, it was a winding road uh, to get to my PhD. And then after my PhD, it, it was a further winding road. So after the PhD, you did plan to practice again? Uh, my thought uh, when I was done with my PhD was, to, well, I did go on the job market like everybody does, right? You know, I published a couple of papers and a postdoc, um, and uh, and I NIMH right postdoc. If I know this is setting me up for success, man, I'm going to be doing this right. Um, it, but I didn't realize at the time. So I know that your your podcast often asks your guests for advice. Is that I I really overshot the mark that any anthropology department would be interested in my research interests of, you know, researching, you know, social and cultural factors that contribute to psychiatric recovery for individuals in the criminal justice system. I really overestimated, <laughs> you know, and nobody was really interested in that, uh, even applied programs. And I'm not trying to be a naysayer to any of those folks, right? But, but also, it was just a challenging job market for me because I was at the intersection of these fields and criminal justice people wanted your ability to analyze large quantitative data sets, which I didn't have that skill set, even though I did a little bit of that in my public health program. Um, and nobody's interested in qualitative research among these types of folks, right, in the criminal justice system. I hate to say that, but a lot of times it's true. So that was very, that was very challenging time. So I had to shift, and I did a lot of research about working in uh, research consultancies, like the federal research consultancies, right? So federal contracting. When I started talking to those folks at uh, for these job applications and these interviews about what they were doing, you know, at, at these companies, at these large consulting agencies in Atlanta, is that a lot of the things that we thought about in academics, about this siloed thinking about, you know, working through research problems or questions and what you're gonna implement and how you're gonna answer these very pressing societal questions, um, there was no silo in there, right? So it's basically like, you know, they would uh, five, five years, $5 million contract to research um, this particular program for SAMHSA or the CDC, and they want to have qualitative researchers on that project, you know, consulting and collaborating with quantitative researchers and presenting research objectives and questions and making sure that the results were applicable. And at the time, I said, this is exactly where I need to be. You know, this is, this, this is 
this is not talking about hey you're just a qualitative researcher so you don't know about how to do this and this isn't you know and you can't do logistic regression on your own so we're not gonna consider you for a public health program um you know a faculty position so that was an eye-opener and it really you know it really took a lot of time to figure that out um in terms of like hey this is what this is where the jobs for anthropologists are, you know, and I, and I, and I would also add that, that what contributed to that, and I, I'd, I'd make this recommendation, all your listeners, is that know your methods. If someone gets you on a phone call for a job interview and says, describe to me how you collect and analyze qualitative data, you better not say code for themes and then just leave it at that. So you, you need to basically say how you come up with your research questions and research objectives, your approach to a moderator guide, how long it takes, how many questions are going to be on that moderator guide, you know, for that 60 minute session you're going to do. You better be able to identify timelines of how long this is going to take and the effort that you have to put into it to finish it. Um, you should be able to have skill sets in qualitative analytic software like in Vivo, Max QDA, you should be able to do that. Um, you shouldn't say, I just take notes. <laughs> so, um, one thing I learned early on was that some of the things that we did in academics uh, in a PhD program um, is not applicable, right? They want to see structured probes, right? They want to see a list of things that you're going to ask people. And uh, I remember one of my first roles, I, they said, hey, can you come up with an interview guide for what we're going to do? I'm like, yeah, sure. So I gave him a piece of paper with five questions on it for 60 minutes, which in anthropology sounds great, right? There's a lot of exploration that you could do there, right? That's the expectation. And they said, what is this, man? You do understand, right, that we have to send this to our federal partners, right? They don't want to see five questions. They want, us, they want someone to be able to use this over time. So you're creating a research product for them. So there's a little bit of growth there, obviously, in trying to align with an applied contracting world. Um, and I, and, but I cannot stress enough, if you were going to ask that, is that know your methods. And I, and I learned in my postdoc, they said, an advisor of mine said, you're not getting any hits for your, for your uh, faculty applications, right? I'm like, not really. And he said, you know, um, you need to think about pitching yourself as a methodologist you know, because you're a qualitative researcher, right? And you can go and you can create qualitative research proposals. Your work has been funded by the federal government, by state and local agencies for your qualitative work. He says you need to, he meant branding, but he wasn't using those words, right? He said, so since that time, I have branded myself, so to speak, as a qualitative researcher um, and, and all that entails. So, so besides just the analytic methods that you need to be be able to describe to somebody what you're doing, you need to also consider yourself as a social scientist, where if there is an ambiguous problem space, you have the ability to do generative research, i.e. literature review, to come up with the research questions that are necessary to push the knowledge forward. And that's very applicable to these applied environments, right? In terms of business strategy or, you know, federal contracting for health projects or anything of this nature. So, you know, one thing there, you mentioned how you kind of overshot the, yeah, the position, but now working in design, you know, what does that tell you about sort of designing for the future of your career? Yeah. So one of the things I'd offer here is that, well, I mean, sad to say in 2020, I got laid off because of the pandemic, right? So, and I had an opportunity because I would also recommend this to all your listeners, keep your eyes and your ears open 
for things, right? You find the most little bits of knowledge about career path and who, who might who might have information that you need just by keeping your eyes and ear open. So yes, I'm actually suggesting people not to stay in their lane. <laughs> so when I when I was working at one of the federal consulting agencies, I got I got a very interesting experience about design-centered thinking for a health campaign for the CDC. And all the way from workshopping the ideas for the health campaign messaging with CDC officials and doctors, all the way from that to A-B testing materials uh, with participants, the generative work to even understand who we would even talk to or pitch this campaign to. So I just paid attention. And I said, well, I mean, I can do this, right? And then after I got laid off in 2020, I, I realized like there's a massive space here for qualitative work that's human-centered, that is also linked up with you know design um design thinking digital products so just did a lot of research and it, i also had an opportunity to meet a lot of people during that time a lot of people were on linkedin during the summer 2020 trying to connect and figure out their next steps and i knew some anthropologists that had gone into uxr and i said okay i'm gonna try and so that's when you became aware yeah, of it. Yeah, I think I, I knew a little bit before then, just from my work at that health campaign, and, and that particular company had a strong uh, design team, you know, and we did some journey mapping for a utilities company to give me some insight into that, and into that world. And I said, hey, these are the same skills, but just applied in a different way. Um, it's much more rapid, for sure. <laughs> so there was that also. Um, but yeah, it, it, that's really what it was. Just like saying, you know, just paying attention to your environment, paying attention to who's talking, and also, yeah, doing your research. I mean, I got a stack of O'Reilly books here I go through, you know, once a week. So you have to, you know, it's a cliche for a PhD to say I'm a lifelong learner. Everybody says that. I've said it a hundred times, but it is true, right? You have to kind of keep your eyes open. I mean, I've been using ChatGPT the past couple of weeks. Right? I'm never going to say it out loud. Uh, That'll never fly. <laughs> never going to say that again, right? Any other skills that you had to acquire in that period that you think are worth mentioning? I, I listened to a few of your podcasts, and I, I know that some of the apologists talk about the, the collaborative efforts, and I think that's important. You know, there's this idea of the lone ranger, right? The lone person, just the anthropologist out on their own. And um, you have to really learn to work with other people. I think anthropologists, however, are can be skilled at that, even though they may not be trained to do that, because you have to read the room. You have to know who the players are in a particular business context to understand who's the decision maker, who's not, but who has the person that has unannounced power or leverage, you know? Um, so I think the collaborative piece can never be underestimated. You're going to be working on teams and you're going to have to show the value of your work to people. And you should be able to do that. It's not just research for the sake of research. You need to demonstrate the value of that that particular team at the time, in addition to the business value. And I can't stress the importance of that enough, that you have to be able to say, if we do A, B, and C, based on our understanding of the analytics of this product, um, the, the, you know, this is going to drive conversion forward, or this is going to ensure seamless user experience, which we know from the larger data, that this is going to contribute to business revenue. So all those last phrases I use, a lot of anthropologists who might be listening saying, how do I get into business? Like, I don't want to hear that, but hey, this is, 
if you want to move forward in this, this is the way you have to think. Um, and you have to be very uh, attentive uh, to working with others and making sure that you're providing value. Um, we should never say, I don't know why we're doing this. So in your managerial role, are you doing any hiring? Um, I have before in the past, a lot of interviews with folks um, and other roles that I've had, uh, bought people on board. I've mentored several anthropologists over my career to kind of help them along to get away from the academy and into the world of business. So I'm very familiar with the process. Any common mistakes you've seen? I would say hesitancy and uncertainty will kill you in an interview. Um, you, you need to be able to, first of all, as you, as you know, and I know you've told everybody, you know, get your CV down to a one pager. I know that's very distressing for people. And I've always used the XYZ resume format. You know, what did you do? What was the outcome? What was the impact? Right. So you can't just say, I wrote 10 reports, right? Anybody can write 10 reports, <laughs> but what, what, where did those reports go? How are they used? What was the impact of? So that XYZ format. I would definitely recommend that. But in terms of just the general interview, it really is about demonstrating your value to particular organizations that you've worked at. Um, also, sometimes if you're interviewing people in the business, people in the business world or in applied environments are interview, interviewing you and they say, oh, you got a grant, you know, and, and it's on your resume or something. Well, they may not know what that is. So you have to control your own narrative. You're the one that has to say, here's who I am. And there is no outside uh, you know, force or, or permanent list of things that you're being measured against. It is you in that moment identifying how I can contribute to your organization. So frequently people would look at my LinkedIn page or my CV or resume and they're like, grants, so what? I'm like, do you understand how competitive that is? And they're like, no, it wouldn't tell me. <laughs> I'm like, well, they only award a few of those every year. And I got one because of my research jobs. And they're like, oh, well, that sounds amazing. I'm like, well, thanks. <laughs> so even publications, right? So they may not understand even what that is. So if you have publications, you need to identify that, you know, this is based on research that I created, that I implemented. And this is the toughest review process in the world, right? To get scientific literature published. I'm not trying to insult everybody who writes reports for the feds or different things, but it's true. Right, you could go for a year in a review. So you need to translate things to people and be very confident and say, "This is why I'm the best fit for this." Right? That that's hard to put into practice, but that that is my recommendation. And communicating to people to what you've done. If they say, "Have you ever mentored people?" Say, "No, but I was an adjunct professor for ten years. How did you think? How much mentoring do you think I did there?" Right? Not to be flippant, but you you have to translate a lot of that into the interview. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned the the. Uh term branding earlier. And so how do you think that applies you know, beyond the resume? Well, if you want to look at, if you're, if you're talking about LinkedIn or any other kind of social media, um, you have got to be on LinkedIn. You have got to be engaging with people. You have got to be, you know, commenting uh, on thought leaders posts. Um, even if you're like, I don't, why would I do this? I don't even know what I'm talking about. But just being visible to where if somebody researched you online, there would be a lot of intelligent comments. There'd be a lot of connections. There is your elevator pitch up in your LinkedIn profile about who you are and what you do and what value you bring to an organization. So I think that's all very important, um, you know, to, to, to present yourself. You know, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. And so it's important if somebody clicks on your LinkedIn page, they can really identify, hey, this person, qualitative research for 10 years, they've 
you know, gotten grants to do their work. Um, you know, they uh, managed classrooms full of people. Um, you know, they have, they've worked in applied projects. They've collaborated on teams. They've managed budgets and timelines. All of that, all of that should be out there for people to see. If you just put, you know, hey, I published a couple of papers and there's really no indication what you did as a doctoral candidate, people are just going to skip it. They think, you know, that's just, just, it just doesn't make sense to people, I think, outside of that world. And, and so coming back to the role a little bit, you know, you mentioned this sort of need to make sure that the research is in front of people. It's not just about doing the research, but it's also about helping it land. And so at Answer Lab, you would have the opportunity to work with some larger organizations. So tell us a little bit about, you know, how you navigate that and how you make sure that the research is received, uh, you know, as desired. Right. You talk a little bit about my role as a senior UXR there. Um, really, it's all about showing the applicability and actionable recommendations for whatever product they're testing, if you're doing usability testing, right? So you have to be able to, any kind of reusability test, you have to be able to show, I know your product. I've, I've learned it by collaborating with you to show me what your questions are. I've offered questions to you, and here's what we found out, and here's what you should do next. And it should be very doable, so to speak, for those development teams. You can't say, oh, I think Walmart should create an AI to, to help people talk to it, you know, to shop. You can't say things like that. You have to be very focused on that team's mission. Okay, so there's that. So it has to be actionable. Um, it also has to be digestible, right? You can't have run-on sentences. I mean, I guess a lot of this stuff goes without saying. I've reviewed a lot of reports and a lot of, you know, uh, documents over my career, and it has no run-on sentences, no passive sentence structure. Um, it has to be point for point what you found, and everything has to go back to the research objectives that you've collaborated and identified with with the team that you're working with. So, if there's any question about your work, you can always look at that and say, and they say, well, "Why is this in here?" It's like, well, let's go to research objective two B. And you'll see that this speaks to this, and this is why this is in here. It just wasn't particularly relevant at the time. We found that out, so we answered that research objective. So having a structure to what you do that's digestible and shareable. Um, there's a variety, obviously, of ways to do that. PowerPoint, text-based work, things that, you know, whatever it is that's going to work for your team. But also understanding how people digest the work. You know, sometimes maybe a one-pager is okay. Maybe sometimes a 40 a slide, 40 page slide deck's good, depending on the audience. So you have to also think about the audience. Um, is this a larger stakeholder group? Are these executives? Or is this just the development team that just needs something during a sprint? Know your audience, right? Read the room and understand the context of what you're working with. An anthropologist, obviously, very skilled in assessing the context, you know, that they're in and, and how the, the work gets completed. Are you um, seeing any trends? I think some of the trends that are that are important to recognize is that you've seen all of these layoffs, right, in the in the tech world, right? We just seen this go on. There's a lot of austerity occurring. I mean, I'm not saying anything people don't know. So I think one of the things that people are thinking about is say, how can we conduct research that is mindful of these budgetary restrictions? Right, we don't have a blank check anymore, okay? Because somebody puts value on UXR in some office somewhere, right? So we have to say, here's the value that we're providing, okay? I've already had buy-in for 20 years. What else you got? <laughs> well, the second thing is, how can we implement it 
for it to be cost effective and your ROI is going to be solid. I think from a managerial perspective, that's the thing that I'm most concerned about. And when I, when I, when I design and scope work for our um, partners at Answer Lab and we're having these conversations, that's in the forefront of my mind. Okay, so I want to make the research valuable. I want to make sure the research objectives align to their business objectives in addition to their product design objectives. But that's the other thing too. What's it going to cost? And I think that's crucial in 2023 to start thinking about that. So part of that for me is I'm thinking, well, what other, what are some low cost alternatives to what we're doing? Um, maybe for this particular instance, unmoderated research might give us the ROI that we're looking for given our budgets. Um, we can't spend two weeks in the field doing ethnography. So is there a different way to do this? Um, you know, all of these software platforms, are there new ones coming out that are more cost effective for where companies are within their budgets. Um, so it's really about that these days. We can't assume that there's just this unlimited funnel of money going into research, right? We really need to be financial stewards of our partners, our companies, our teams. It's crucial. So do you have anything coming up that you'd like to share? Uh, yeah, thanks, Matt. Um, this year, uh, as e-commerce strategy manager at Answer Lab, I'm going to be implementing two webinars. Uh, one of them that's in the planning phase right now is for international research and talking about the logistics of that and how you implement that. Uh, Answer Lab has a very robust uh, international research capacity. Um, so we conduct interviews and do surveys in China, Brazil, Poland, Germany, the works. Okay. So, however, a lot of our partners come to us and they're like, how does this even work? And what's it going to cost? Because this is very valuable to us um, for these other market penetrations. So um, that's one thing we'll be doing. Um, and I would ask people to connect with me on LinkedIn, follow me on LinkedIn. Um, I'll be posting something in Q2 about that webinar. Um, and giving people information on, on how to get involved in that, ask some questions um, uh, to our research ops team. And uh, also, I'm glad to connect with any anthropologists um, as well in case they want to continue this conversation with me or, or want more information. I'm always happy to help because at this stage of my career, it's I can actually say I've been there. <laughs> so all the challenges and stress that you're experiencing, I get it. And I've been there, and uh, hopefully I've succeeded. We'll see. <laughs> well, it sounds like you're doing well. So, Joe, thanks for your time. Appreciate you coming on. Hey, thank you, Matt. Really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today. Thank you all for listening to the Anthro to UX podcast. To learn everything you need to break into UX, visit anthrotoux.com. There you will find all the podcast episodes and career coaching resources. Please like, share, and subscribe. See you next time.